Okay. So, hello. <laughs> um, I'm going to do this, obviously, as a podcast. Uh, I'm going to upload it to YouTube as well and then kind of put it out there. Um, but last time I didn't really do an introduction because it wasn't meant to be uh, a podcast. So I'm going to say hi. I'm Emma, uh, the founder of the Get to Know Me Project. Um, on today's episode, we are going to be talking about eating disorders. Um, and I have with me the lovely Eva, um, who has also been posted on the Get to Know Me Project Instagram page. Um, and would you do a little introduction about who you are, um, just kind of generally speaking, and then maybe a little bit about what was on your um post on Instagram. Yeah, sure. My name is Eva Echo. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I am a blogger, activist based in Birmingham at the moment, and I am brand ambassador for London Transgender Clinic. Um, I'm an activist, trans spokesperson for gendered intelligence, and I currently sit on the Crown Prosecution Services hate crime panel as well. Um, oh, wow. Founder of the Pass It On campaign, and yeah, I mean, it's a while ago now when I was I did the um, get to know me post, but that was talking about my experiences. I, I seem to remember a lot of it was like my childhood growing up and my experiences, and that was really done to shed light on the fact that I'm just a person. You know, people may not always understand trans people or anybody that's gender diverse, but to shed light on just with people, you know, and that's what drew me to the project that it was there to create this diverse pool of experience that everybody can relate to yeah yeah thank you um yeah because basically I mean to any new listeners who don't know the Instagram account that is basically what it is it's for anyone to go on and kind of share their experiences and also just kind of open up like conversations I'm quite a firm believer that conversations is what can basically change the world and that's what I want to try and do with these conversations um on the podcast that if we can just all talk about how we might feel then that can make it easier and one of the aims with today's podcast is talking about um so I've suffered from eating disorders still do I'm in the process of healing completely you have as well um and basically wanting to talk about our different experiences and maybe the different um treatments that we've undergone and how i'm because i'm doing a psychology course as well i have some clinical methods that i can talk about but also some alternative methods to people where the clinical route hasn't really been useful um, so I don't know if you want to talk about, to start with maybe um, if you were diagnosed with an eating disorder, what the eating disorder it was and um, like how, how that, not necessarily how it happened, we don't necessarily know that, but when you kind of have your first memory of it and how, how that felt at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, I was diagnosed and it wasn't a clear-cut diagnosis in that you know, they normally like to put like anorexia or bulimia and, and they, they, they prefer things to be nicely categorized. <clears throat> For me, yeah. it was anorexia bordering on like other ad hoc 
Um, yeah. And that was like this extra category that I thought at the time, shit, that doesn't help me because where do I stand amongst this? And back then I was very much at that point where in a way I needed someone to tell me what the problem was. So that I, I was hoping that if somebody said, yes, this is your problem, I could go away and address it. I mean, this is based on me wanting to get help at that time. Um, before that, I knew I had an eating disorder, I mean, leading up to getting help. And I, I'd had it for like 20 years, 15, 20 years. And it's been, you know, it was an integral part of my adult life. So it was so difficult to kind of unpack everything and tease it out because my whole identity was built around it. And yeah. I, I guess, you know, it, there is no starting point. And I, I quickly learned that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. An eating disorder is an eating disorder. Let's really get to the root cause of it. And for me, I, I knew there's something about food when I was, I think I must've been about 14, 15 and going through a really rebellious stage at home because all through my life, I've never got on with my family and I really struggled to communicate. Me, you know, going through puberty, adolescence and really just trying to find my place in the world. I struggled to communicate and I struggled to, to convey my feelings. And my mom told me, I was in my room and she told me to go downstairs because dinner was ready and I remember that moment clearly where I literally just shouted down the stairs no I'm, I'm, I don't want to eat and I don't know why I did it I, I, like there was no thought put into it I, it wasn't premeditated there was just this almost rage I guess and I just thought you know fuck it no and the moment I said it it was like this huge relief I guess if, that, if that's what you can call it because yeah, yeah. it's like for that moment it's like a light bulb moment and in my head it's almost like I've just told myself you've just taken back control you've just gained something and then so she shouted back up saying don't be stupid you know have dinner and I just said like no I'm not going to and she, I think she just put it down to oh one of those mood swings but yeah, for me, that was a really pivotal moment because I came away thinking I can do this. I have some sort of control over whatever it was. I mean, we hadn't even had an argument or anything. It was just, I was just letting it out. So that for me then carried on. And that was a defining moment because I realized I could take back control. I didn't mm -hmm. understand what, what the reasoning was behind that. I just knew that I could. And I guess from there, I developed this really unhealthy relationship with food because we need it to survive. You know, we, we need yeah. food and that, that's what keeps us going and keeps us alive. And it's almost like a very symbolic way of being in control of your own life and yeah. what you do. So I, I yeah, I mean, I, I just kept on going and I kept on going and there would get to moments where, I mean, this was, you know, still around the later teen years. And if I was out, I would probably eat something only because I was with friends. I didn't want them to know. I felt embarrassed about having to even take control of my life. So I would eat in those moments. So my eating was very sporadic. And yeah. whilst I was at home, I wanted to eat, but I didn't want to relinquish that control by eating. Um, and when I was out, I felt bad for eating. So 
I, I started to kind of unprogram myself, I guess. You know, you're always like through school, you're taught, you have breakfast, you have lunch, you have dinner, and then that's it. And yeah, I really knocked all that out of myself. And growing up, I have good moments where I could eat a bit more. Um, I'd say from the age of about 19, I've never ever had three set meals at regular times. Mm. I just avoided it. Um, and I guess a part of me thought that by not doing that, I could gain control over my body, my image, and that itself, you know, I mean, that's a whole separate issue as well. But yeah, growing up, I really used food for for that control and to be able to, to do something. Um, mm. And that, that's so what Yeah, because obviously eating disorders, I think generally are a control thing for a lot of people um, in whatever way that might be. That is obviously very uh, individual. But I remember, I think we spoke about it before in terms of uh, like gender dysphoria, for example, and the link yeah. that there might be to eating disorders. So I looked into that and found actually quite a lot of, well, not a lot of research, but a few studies about that where the evidence is quite clear that people who suffer from gender dysphoria or people who suffer from eating disorder, it might be caused by gender dysphoria because yeah. it's that kind of, how can you control your body? Well, you can only really control what goes inside of it and how much you might work out. Um, yeah. yeah. So do, do you think, because when you say it, it sounds like there might be a parental or family kind of thing where you might have wanted to take control, but do you think, well, maybe it was mix or? Yeah, I mean, I, when I went to my first eating disorder unit and this was like after everything had been embedded in me and I didn't actually go until I was like mid to late twenties. And even mm. then I wasn't really that fussed about going. It was just a very, oh, you know, if I must, and I was just going through the motions. And even then, I was told, oh, it's probably depression. You'll get your appetite back. Here's some antidepressants. Off you go. And if you have any other problems, come back. And in a way, it's like, that's a doctor telling me it's not an eating disorder. And yeah. I, I latched onto that. And I'm there thinking, well, I can carry on with these behaviours because I'm absolutely fine. The doctor said so. Mm. Um, I always thought, okay, with this behaviour... Of, you know with my eating stemmed from being bullied at school problems at home the communication um, never seeing eye to eye with my family and I ran with that for quite some time I mean deep down I've always known that in terms of my gender identity there's something that I needed to explore and I needed to deal with but that was that that was kind of pushed down because of denial anyway so I right. never made that connection immediately so when I was admitted to an eating disorder unit, it was for family reasons, for bullying reasons. And it seemed like the obvious one back then. They didn't really ask many questions. And when I happened to mention those, it's like they just latched onto it thinking, oh, that'll definitely be it then. Mm. Um, I ended up, that was back in Manchester. And when I moved to Birmingham, I was okay, but then I had a major relapse, ended up at another eating disorder unit. And by this time, I was, I was like struggling because of other reasons. It wasn't family because I'd moved away from them. So 
there's me trying to figure out, well, what could it be then? If it's not my family, I'm no longer being bullied. I'm no longer by my family. So is it just a residual effect? And it's just the pattern that's, that's occurring again? Or is this something more? Um, back then, again, like the, the people at the eating disorder unit assumed it's just a pattern that's just resurfacing and there was a trigger, something that happened and everything has just come back to how it was. Um, but looking back, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it was most definitely the gender identity issue yeah. being the, re the root cause. I mean, yes, the, the bullying, the family issues, they were triggers, but it wasn't the main cause. And mm. a therapist at the second eating disorder unit, during one of our sessions, she was pulling certain things apart. And that's when she just said, I don't think the eating disorder is clear cut. I don't think it's a primary issue. I think it's maybe a secondary underlying yeah. issue that's caused as, as a result of something else that you're going through. So that's when she put me forward for adult psychotherapy um, right. because I'd had CBT before and it just didn't work for me. I was just using it to go through the motions again as a, I suppose, a way to escape if I just do what the therapist wanted me to do and say what they wanted me to say, uh, I would mm. breathe it. Um, but yes, yeah, psychotherapy really pulled me apart and I struggled so much because it was just so alien and I couldn't escape it. Um, but it did ultimately, after a few years of it, it did give me a new perspective on life. And I do credit that with kind of sending me on the journey towards coming out as transgender um, a few years later so it it kind of set all that in motion really yeah well good at least because I think a lot of the time that's not really addressed uh just generally the a lot of psychologists psychotherapists and stuff they're not really they don't really know how to deal with more than just the specific like eating disorder and I think mm. I don't know what your treatments have been like but i feel like the the like the general kind of way of going about it it's very food focused especially with anorexia or atypical atypical anorexia it's very much like we'll get you to eat and that's it and it's going to be like you have to eat breakfast you have to eat this for breakfast you have to eat lunch you have to eat this for lunch you have to eat dinner and you know you're not allowed to exercise loads and I personally think that that is from a survival point of view if you're so skinny that you need to be force fed okay I can understand the logic behind it but for for I think uh, most people with food for an eating sort of person that's fearful like I was afraid of food even so-called healthy food like any food a glass mm. of water like I would feel like I was much bigger than I was um so yeah I don't know how you what was what did they yeah. say quite a similar sort of approach and in the first eating disorder unit I was going through group therapy as well as one-to-one -one therapy mm. and yeah a lot of it was based around getting you to eat again and I always see it as you know like you get the the people on social media that they mean well and they'll say things like well you know just just try and eat something you'll be fine and I always see <laughs> oh yeah I had thought that <laughs> oh it, it winds me up but having an eating disorder therapist basically herding you towards the final goal or the ultimate goal of trying to eat is essentially mm. the same thing just with you know a, a, 
a diploma or a, a professional yeah. qualifications like behind yeah. it. it means nothing. And yeah, we we started to explore things like what do we have that's positive in our lives, and they got us to focus on the positives, almost like as a way to say, so if you want to carry this on, you need to eat. Now let's look at food. What's comfortable? What do you feel is safe? Mm. And it just it was almost like trying to dangle a carrot in front of you, or they were trying to get us to dangle our own carrot, which is yeah. in front of ourselves so that we would ultimately eat. And mm. for some people it worked, you know, it, you know it, it got them to see that they were being self-destructive in a way and they needed to push themselves. But for others who were like me and they lived with it for so long, it just didn't work because You've, you've already built up these walls. You've already given yourself a book of excuses as to why you don't need that food, why you don't need that liquid. And, you know, no matter what they say about your happiness, you don't care. I, I knew that, and I'll openly admit, at the first time that I was at the eating disorder unit, I didn't take it seriously. I, if I went home and carried on with those behaviours and I died because of it, I did not care. I was in a bad place. Yeah. So I wasn't ready for therapy I was forced to go because my weight was so low and I wasn't able to do anything so I wasn't ready for that and for someone to then try and herd me towards food and start talking about safe foods it's just resistance all the way and then yeah. when they hook you up with a dietitian, did you ever did they ever give you like a food diary or tell you to start a food diary and things like that um I mean I was told that I was too fat to be to get help from where I went, uh, which obviously is a great thing to tell someone who's already struggling with an eating disorder. Um, so no, but I went to a clinical psychologist. I think I went there once, twice max, but I only remember the one time I was there. Um, and she tried to get me to do like a food diary and stuff, which didn't really, I still now I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that because I know it can be useful for some people, but then also, my focus was constantly about what I had eaten. It was constantly, I was like, how much have I eaten? What have I eaten? How many calories are in there? Da, da, da. For me, the focus needed to be removed from that. I needed to focus on what's going to keep me alive. Like, how can I feel my best when I eat? Because um, I just lived off of like, I don't know what the brands, well, I know what the brands were, but I don't know if there's any like rules against what I can say, not say. But like diet, powders that you'd have like a shake instead of a meal and like I would live off of that for years and none nothing in my body was functioning properly and that wasn't because of the low weight it was because of that nutrition or the lack yeah. of yeah and and mental health obviously but yeah so yeah yeah well my experience with food diet was just awful again I, I wasn't in the right place for it and I always think that it's it's kind of stupid because I personally found that to write it down and plan ahead, fine, mm. you know, it, it helps you to kind of ease yourself into what to eat. But it, again, it's centered around food. And yeah. rather than deal with the root cause, we're, we're still keeping the emphasis on food. And it's, it's just as unhealthy as our own personal obsession that got us there in the first place. And yeah. I found personally that if I made a food diary, come Tuesday, I would look at that and think, I don't want to eat that. Um, yes. I'd have this internal dilemma of, well, 
I don't want to eat that because it's like a food diary is telling me what to eat. Even though I wrote it, it's externalized and it's now some unknown person telling me yeah. and it stirred up that need for control. So I, yeah. was, I was never able to follow my food diary and I yeah. was put little comments on what I could manage. And those comments were always just didn't agree with that, didn't want to eat it, didn't feel like it, why should I eat that? And mm. I was told by the dietitian that I couldn't be, I shouldn't be so negative. I should give it a try. But I was trying. I was trying, even just looking inside the food diary, was trying. I now know, looking back, that my issue, it just stirred up my my, my need for control. Um, yeah, but also you might not fancy the same as what you wrote two days ago. Like your yeah. your wants and needs change every single day. Like yeah. it became. And I think it's also it's like a fear it would be for me anyway I mean I used to do food diaries because I wanted to control everything that I was eating and like I might not want to eat that but I was like if I if I have to eat I'm going to eat this but it would mm. be the fear of like looking forward to I'm saying that in quote quote signs um like fearing what I am going to be eating later on and I would build up because I like what you're saying like it's a, it's a way of easing it in but for me it was just like I just was thinking about it constantly and it was a fear it was like, oh, fuck, I have to eat this later on like I don't want to do that um but it's yeah it's it's so interesting it's such a like it's interesting I've always been very fascinated with eating disorders and always wanted to work in an eating disorder like clinic not I don't that's not my interest now from like a psychological point of view but at the time it was and I think it was always more about that. I used to just watch like documentaries made about like anorexic people and mm. kind of trying to understand how they felt. And I knew, I knew that I had an eating disorder, but I could never really, um, like how they were portrayed was so extreme and they were so upset and it was just all so horrible. And it was horrible for me as well, but it was, it just was never as bad and it was as if I was almost striving to like get worse and worse because that's what it that's what it looks like yeah. it's supposed to be definitely um, and then I don't think the media and how they portray people with eating disorders that is such a driving force for people to jump yeah. on that because yeah I remember once watching like like yourself documentaries and things or reading articles that involve people who had an eating disorder and it wasn't because I had any fascination I just didn't feel I was getting the help and mm. this was a point where I, I recognized I did need help I didn't feel I was getting the help from the eating disorder unit so it's in a way it, I was looking at other areas I was looking at documentaries I was looking at storylines I was looking at articles and interviews hoping that that would give me a glimpse of what I need to do to get better, but I never yeah. found it. Like you said, it's it's like it's they only pick the the really dramatized, sensationalized yeah. cases. And I remember watching um, it's like a, a soap series called Hollyoaks, and they yeah, did yeah. a storyline involving uh, Beat the eating disorder charity uh, as the consultants, and they did a storyline where one of the characters developed an eating disorder. And that's probably as close as I got to actually connecting with something in the media that resonated with me. Not fully, yeah. because it was quite dramatised. And in a way, I did feel like 
if I needed the help, the correct help, I maybe need to kind of push myself to that level first. Yes, exactly. Yeah. To be recognized, to be noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, cause I think that's one of the reasons why I also want to have these kind of conversations is that I didn't have anyone that I kind of recognized in media or whatever. And like the majority of the times that's not what the eating disorder actually looks like. Some of us can be very fully functioning, still have a social life and just kind of have that fear inside of silently suffering from, I mean, after I've started posting stuff on my Instagram, my personal Instagram account now about my eating disorder and like either pictures of my body that I never thought I'd want to share with anyone. I still don't really want to share them, but I feel like it might help other people because it's definitely helped me to see those kinds of photos on Instagram and have actually found Instagram to be super helpful if you know how to kind of navigate it because it's also one of the most triggering places in the entire world for me um what was I going to say with this oh yes so after posting the the types of eating disorder related things that I've been posting I have people from that I worked with like several years ago being like shit I didn't know you were suffering with this like you've just gone through this without like in so quietly which is because I've never actually felt like I was being quiet about it my family's always known I've always been quite vocal about it because it's helped communicating and talking about it helped me so much Mm. um it was such a release to just be able to to like let it out um but obviously I've you know, I've still been very quiet about it because um, I just didn't want people to, you know, be worried or think about it. Um, and I think I always thought that I had it quite under control, which I'm sure we all like to think with our eating disorders because mm-hmm. um, obviously that's kind of what it is. Um, but yeah, obviously I've come to the realization now that that's, that's not the case. I mean, I, I feel like it's, I have it, under control I'm still very functioning but it's still there in the back of my head like 20 years later I've had it since I was seven and I'm just sick of it now like I have so much more that I just want to spend my time and energy on I don't want to think about the fact that my thighs are touching like fuck that shit it's so annoying it's Um, like I mean even though I'm classed as recovered from like a medical sense Mm-hmm. I still think about it. Those thoughts mm-hmm. are always there, and you kind of just learn to cope. You you you, you learn to coexist with them and what not to listen to. And yeah. I don't think anyone ever fully fully recovers. Yes, from a physical yeah. point of view, and that's because they measure things like BMI, which is just not representative whatsoever. Yeah. And once you hit a a range, or you're within a healthy range, they just basically discharge you job done you are and oh that's just it's insane that that's I mean that's that's been debunked like BMI is bullshit first Mm. of all it was measured on like white male back in the day so if you're not a white male cis male then you're not like you're not healthy you you don't even you can't even be measured that way and probably even if you were I'm sure there's other elements because it's like weight and height and like if you're have more muscle that I mean it's just stupid anyway shocking that they're still that that's how they basically say okay well you're fine now yeah also um, because eating disorders they aren't like they don't discriminate anyone at any size any gender any sexuality whatever anyone can have an eating disorder exactly yeah (sighs) 
And it's- I mean, and I think it's often, sorry, it's often shown as like white privileged girls yeah. is very much what's kind of shown in the media. I've even struggled to find stuff in my like research that I've been doing on my course about anyone who isn't white, female and young there's just not really anything out there um but it doesn't like men can have it too yeah it's and I mean actually one thing that I've not really seen much of is anyone within the say BAME in the UK or a BIPOC community there's not there's not any research out there but obviously yeah. people you know within people those people do yeah it's, they still yeah, have eating disorders yeah I mean I have never ever come across you know a person of colour who has openly talked about or admitted to an eating disorder. Mm. Think back now to my experiences of an eating disorder unit. No, it was, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I suppose in terms of ethnicity, I was, I was that representative. It, otherwise, yeah. it was just, yeah, a white dominated area. And that makes me think, is it because they are suffering and they're not coming forward or they're just, I don't know because of their culture they play it down and they, they you know it's it's seen as something else and it's not mm. recognized within their culture as an illness it's just yeah. something you power through because I remember when my parents found out about my eating disorder um that you know we, we weren't on good terms but all they had to say was just eat something you know don't be stupid you need to this, you've got your life ahead of you. Just eat something. Don't be stupid. And words mm. that effect. And uh, yeah, I mean, very traditional people from Hong Kong originally. And they have a very, very strong family ethic where you stick together. And yeah, I was the black sheep. But it, very much so, yeah, you work through it. You deal with it. You basically suck it up. Just get on with it. And, yeah, yeah. And I know that speaking to to some of the like you know, Chinese people that I knew back then, not a single one had any issues like that because oh. if they did, they would have just soldiered through, and that's what's building mm. them from quite a young age. You 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 just get on with it. And thinking back to like my parents now, I know that my mom and my dad are incredibly unhappy together. They have been for right. years. And if it wasn't for having kids, having a house, things like that, even though we're all grown up and doing our own thing, they still stay together because mm. they just think, well, we just let's just make it work. Let's just try and put that square peg in a round hole and just keep trying and trying until the day we die. And that's just how they are. And that's how they've been brought up. So it does make me wonder about other cultures. Is it a similar yeah. sort of thing where it's just not recognized, it's just not acknowledged and it's just swept yeah. under the carpet. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very interesting sort of topic from like a, a research point of view. Um, also just because obviously you're an example, like obviously, you know, it exists within those cultures. It's mm. just not, maybe it's just not talked about very much. And therefore, cause I was thinking when you said that, when you asked around, they all kind of said no. But were they saying no because they didn't want to say yes? Or were they actually saying no because that wasn't the case? Yeah. Um, but obviously if it's kind of represented, not that we're one of, we want to be like, hey, pro eating disorders, but pro 
there being someone looking like you who suffers from the same thing that you might suffer from like that has certainly helped me being able to talk about it more um so yeah it always just takes that one thing to kind of open the door you know whether you see someone in the media you hear of someone else's experience and that, I think that's, that's the case right across the board. You know, it's not just eating disorders, whether it's coming out or speaking up about other mental health illnesses, cancer, this, that, any experiences, assault. It's just, it takes one person to just kind of say something, make a remark and other people jump on that because they think finally someone else, all this time I thought it was yeah. me, there is someone else. And yeah. it's a shame that we're, we're in a, we live in a society where we're, we're, we're waiting for each other to speak up. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. I mean, just in general, like language is so important. Like just having the words to say what you want to say. And if you don't hear them talked, then how are you going to know? Like, yeah. it's not, you're not just going to create a word necessarily. I mean, some people might, but <laughs> I don't think that's like the general thing to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. Um, so how what was the first um like clinical or whatever kind of treatment that you went into and how what did they tell you to do I know you've touched on it already um but just kind of how what was that like and then if you've been in more di like different types of treatment like what were they what do, did you kind of have to do what were the exercises that they gave you and stuff um and how did they work? Did they or did they not work? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was CBT. That that was the chosen form. Yeah. Of and actually, and it's funny. It's just that is actually not very effective, but it's the most used one. It's yeah. actually proven to not be very effective. I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's very very low. And for some reason, that's the one that is the most used one for eating disorders. Seems to be a go-to for a lot of therapies. And you know, not yeah. just disorders. And it's just like I guess it's just quick and easy from their perspective. It's a set of rules that they push onto you, and you follow those rules. Mm. A thought pattern, off you go. And I, I struggled because I know what I was doing deep down. I, I couldn't find the words to say it. I knew what I was doing, and I knew to what extent I was slowly destroying my life because of it. CBT did not help because it just. I got to the point where I went to those sessions, the group sessions, and it was an hour, and it was just an hour where I'm just sat looking at the wall and wasn't really paying mm. attention. And in the one-to-one -one sessions, it was just very much trying to pull my life apart so that they can look into various aspects of it, getting me to talk and almost following a set pattern with, for dealing with feelings. And it was like, you know, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Have you ever felt like this? What would you do? Well, you know, have you ever thought about it like this? And I'm just sat there thinking, nah, you know, I think in a way, I even in my first ever like period of therapy at an eating disorder unit, I think deep down, I knew that the gender identity thing was there yeah. as an issue and that the dysphoria that kept resurfacing was always there. But I didn't want to be the one that said it out loud. And CBT didn't do anything to help me volunteer that information, to help me understand it enough to then say to a therapist, 
oh actually what about this if anything mm. um it just kind of skimmed the surface so anything deep rooted I wasn't being asked to talk about it so sure as hell wasn't going to fish it out and, and offer it to them so yeah it was just a it just became this weird forced dialogue. I was saying what they needed me to say and they thought I was making progress and eventually- mm. got So you kind of sussed them out. You were like, this is what they yeah. want to hear. Um, yeah. In a way, I, th I don't think I meant to. I think my approach was, again, I wasn't in a bad place at that particular time. The sooner I get this over and done with, the sooner I can go back to living my life where I'm not under a microscope. I don't mm. have people checking in on me. I will say what I need to say to get out of that situation, go yeah. back to my own enclosure and I can just do as I please and nobody can. Yeah. Um, so to go back to your eating disorder, basically going absolutely. back to controlling what you, yeah. what you eat. It was all I knew and mm. I lived with it for so long at that point, I didn't know anything else. And I've become this hermit, like, I would have certain, like my lifestyle pattern revolved around going to work, coming home, not doing very much, just so that I mm. can I can spend more time in this bubble because that's where I felt wanted, I felt safe, I felt things were in control. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the only other time when I would try and eat something, I would always have to like make bargains with myself. Like mm. I would say, okay, well, if you go out with your friends and you have a few drinks on the way home, you can get some chips or something, treat yourself. And yeah, I had to make these bargains with myself in order to do anything like that. But then knowing, mm. oh, well, it's probably fast food, so I won't eat for a few days leading up to it. So yeah, <laughs> I itself had, you know, so many other vicious cycles. And yeah, it was just like, I can only imagine, you know, um, Lord of the Rings. I, I'm not really a fan, but I know there's a character, uh, Gollum, which is like this little, yeah, yeah, thing. And it yeah. really felt like that. I was having mm. to physically talk to another me and mm. having just to yeah. be able to exist. And by then, people starting to talk, people starting to wonder why my behaviors were so weird. Like um, the team I worked on, we would sometimes go for team lunches. I would always make my excuse and say that I'm really, really busy. We were a small, close-knit team, so I couldn't really keep that up for long. But somehow, somehow, I managed to convince myself that I'd fooled everybody. And even though I was working like nine to five, I would have my lunch when everybody else came back from lunch, when the whole office had come back from lunch. So I'd have my lunch at like three o'clock, and just so that I can sit downstairs on my own, didn't have to eat, and nobody was there to see mm. that I wasn't eating and yeah. excuses just so I can remove myself and the, the 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 weird patterns of eating morphed into a weird patterns of just existing because it became a thing that dominated my life and I had to live to it I I'd written my own rules and I had to follow those rules um it's if I felt like I was breaking those rules I'd punish myself and you know whether it's trigger warning, self-harm or suicide attempts or restricting myself even more, almost like mm. a way of punishing myself there. So it was a, it was a no-win situation regardless of what I did, but I still yeah. kept going because 
my therapist was saying you're making good progress and it wasn't really un, you know unpacking the real the real raw stuff yeah um, but I mean I I just kept that going because I thought well if you're not going to ask the questions I'm not going to volunteer anything because again I, going back to the gender dysphoria the gender identity issues I was so ashamed of that I really didn't even want to talk to a therapist about it even if they managed to pull it out of me I just felt right. accepted I, I was a freak I was probably better off dead than talking to anyone let alone going through with a transition and coming out so I wasn't prepared to even talk about it and I suppose I was sabotaging any therapy because yeah I needed to keep it away I needed to keep that secret from being discovered yeah and like maybe the eating disorder was a re replacement it was like that that's what they would focus on like what your family would be like worried about rather than the actual issue of you yeah. you know wanting to transition definitely yeah. I and I found the biggest difference was psychotherapy because I'd never heard of it before but at that time and it was so intense I did not have any opportunity to think of little ways to cook mm. I couldn't sidestep and the therapist was was so experienced every time I tried to wriggle out of something she'd be like on me straight away bringing me back and every time I looked like I was going to make an excuse she'd snap me out of it and in a way for the first few sessions really forced me to to subscribe to psychotherapy because I was just thinking okay new game how do I cheat the system this time around mm. yeah it wasn't until I absolutely surrendered to the therapy and the therapist that I actually saw any change within myself. And the weird thing is, CBT, it's like you know what you're going to change, you know how you're going to change the approach. It's all laid out before you do anything, and you then just yeah. follow the steps. Psychotherapy, there's nothing, there was no trailer for it, there was no teaser. Mm. And I really what, is, what were you asked to do? What was their approach? What did they what did they make you do? What did they ask you? Um, the very first session was why do you think you're here? Um, hmm. I basically had everything kind of planned out what I was going to say. And then we just started going off the, at different tangents, and I couldn't figure out why we were talking about certain things um she said very little throughout those first few sessions and I felt so uncomfortable I carried on talking I felt like I needed to you know just keep talking because I couldn't deal with that awkward silence and it seemed that she was happy to have that awkward silence but it really annoyed me so I would start talking about things I would try and deviate from the reasons why I'm there, talk about music that I was doing at the time. And then she would randomly pick up on certain points and get me to pause. And then she would not unpause until I'd answered her question or elaborated on something. Yeah. And I still, I still like can't believe, it's like I got completely blindsided by all her questions. I still <laughs> cannot believe I said the things that I did and I did yeah. not see it coming. 
And I think that's when I realized I can't trick her. I can't trick this system. So I, I you know, I may as well just let go and, and give it a shot properly. And we talked about family, but not in the usual sense in terms of how was the relationship with your parents and did you ever feel like you weren't good enough? It was, it was all the questions you just would not expect. And, mm. and I'm there like, I was so confused that I would try and make sense of it by talking about it. And yeah. by doing so, I was actually giving information away and about how I felt. And yeah, I just, I just remember walking away from the first few months of it thinking like, someone's conned me here because... <laughs> They really like shit. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> How they do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like this. It's like watching a Darren Brown show these days. You know, you just think, "How? <laughs> you know, you've tricked me. You've cheated me." And yeah. um, it's even to this day, I still can't figure out what what they would like, what they were thinking to try that approach. But whatever it did, you know, it worked. Whatever that approach was. And, and I was doing that for like three, three and a half years. Um, and oh, that yeah. was a session every week without fail. And it was hard work because there were times when I was really upset over things and I needed to deal with things I'd never dealt with before. Mm. But I refused to show emotion. I refused to cry and I refused to even just let those awkward feelings sit with me. So in a way, as these things that were buried kept surfacing I was doing my best to just kind of bat them away as much as possible and as quickly as possible but you know the therapy it was relentless because she just keep it's like tennis you just kept batting them and hitting them back at me wearing me down to the point where I would have to let something really uncomfortable sit with me and just kind of wash over me and then talk about how I felt and mm. I felt like it was so overwhelming I had to talk, otherwise I was going to explode in that chair there and then. So it really did start to kind of leave uh, open all the little cracks and start letting more and more through. And I, I guess that's what's helped me to kind of get more in touch with how I was feeling, my emotions, yeah. because leading up until that point, I, I knew happiness. I, If I was giggling, I was happy. It was a very primary school look like you know if I had a smile on my face I was happy if I had a frown I was sad but I couldn't recognize anything else I was just completely switched yeah. off and um wow. it was it was really really tense because there was so much emotion hidden and repressed over the years that I suppose it couldn't be let out all at once it would needed to mm. be done so in a very controlled way and yeah Without all of that, I would never have gone on to do the things that I've done since then. So I am really, really grateful for that. It was tough. It was hard work. And there were so many times when I really wanted to just phone up and cancel appointments. But sticking with it really did help. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, for any therapy, but I think especially with eating disorders, so... I feel like I'm very, I'm very far, I can like taste freedom, freedom from my eating disorder. Um, but it's making that decision. Like the reason why it hasn't worked before is because I haven't been ready to let go of that part of me. And I still can't 
fully imagine what my life is going to be like without my eating disorder. What am I going to do with all of that time? Honestly, mm-hmm. the amount of time, hours every single day that I think about my body and I hate myself. What am I going to do? Like that's it's you have to, it's like a new life you have to start. Yeah. And I think until you're ready to accept that you're it's not you know it's not going to work. And you might need therapy to get to that point you might not necessarily get there before you get therapy but you have to make the decision to definitely to change that in your life um, yeah it is like coming you know stepping out of that comfort zone stepping out of that that black and white world and it's just a blank canvas it's up to you to fill in all those colors but you don't know how to you don't know how to mm. paint because you've been living in this monochrome world for so long it's it's like you need therapy just to ease you into it and almost kind of teach you all those coping mechanisms that you never had because you've always hidden behind the main one which has been your best friend for so long and yeah I don't know I I like like what you're saying about not having it in your life anymore I used to think that I used to think I had an eating disorder free life because I was able to function, I was able to eat, and I was able to just not dwell on it. But I do recognise since then that thoughts are always there. You know, Mm. eating and I'm planning, oh, what should we have for dinner tonight? Hidden amongst the choices of what's in the fridge. At the back of my mind, there is a little system that's also thinking, okay, of, of all those choices, which one's the healthiest? Yeah. It's, it's always there and it's like trying to tease out, am I thinking that way because I think, yeah, I need to eat healthy, we're in lockdown, you know, not much exercise, or is it that part of that eating disorder that's trying to resurface by saying, don't mm. bad for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. Too, it's difficult knowing where that decision comes from, where that thought comes from. Definitely. What do you do when that happens? Because I, I have like different methods that I'm trying to implement every time um for various reasons I have a stack of books here that I'm just going to be recommending later on um but one of the things that I do in terms of eating for example is if I'm thinking oh no I shouldn't eat that then that's what I'm going to eat I'm trying to like force myself to be okay with any type of food I mean I'm I classify as a non-hysterical vegan, which means if someone has baked a birthday cake and there's an egg in it or something I'll still eat it but other than that I'm vegan um but I mean I've been a raw vegan and basically just lived off of letters and that's a whole different discussion but anyway um yeah what kind of like what triggers might you have and how do you kind of challenge them I think at the moment a a trigger would be looking at the little nutrition symbols and labels oh yes I know Mm. why they do them but the it's just not, it doesn't help because yeah. I see green, amber, red. And when I go shopping, that's all I am looking for. Mm. And it's just fuels and, you know, gets you to think about those unwanted thoughts and behaviours that you've tried so hard to work against. And yeah, I understand, like I say, I understand why they do them, but I just, no, it's yeah. too easy for you to focus on that. Um, like you, I try and force myself to to eat the things that I feel are 
you know, you shouldn't eat that, it's bad for you. Um, I actually then just say, I ask Pip, well, what, what do you fancy for dinner? And mm. she'll suggest things. And usually it's, it might have been something that I was thinking too, but if she says it, it makes it okay. Because uh, yeah. that way, I, that's the only way I can be sure that my eating disorder thoughts have not tainted that particular meal in any yeah. way because there's no way she would have thought that and had that yeah. same thought pattern so if she says it then that it's a way of validating how far I am away from all of that because yeah it's fine then but if she says something different then I'll maybe consider that or if I then think well I really don't like that let's go with my original thought yeah it's like a way of testing my resolve, my thought patterns in that, am I really thinking and deciding this for the right reasons? And it's almost like, a, I've got to put it to the test. Yeah. And I recognize that I do that a lot. And that's why I think, I, you know, these thoughts won't ever go because however many years on, I've come out, I'm the happiest I've ever been. My mental health is, you know, in a great place. Yeah, I'm still thinking in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Ever fully recover. So yeah, I, I just ask Pip and half the time, like if it's if we want a pizza, I wouldn't want to say it. I just kind of let her suggest it. And if she does, I'm yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I'm not in control. And for, for once, I'm the difference is I'm I'm okay when it comes to relinquishing control over it. Whereas in the past I'd hold on to it. Yeah. Um, I'm now letting go of it because I don't trust myself with those old thoughts just in case they're resurfacing. So if I hand responsibility to somebody else, that control is with them. I can't do any damage to, to me. Yeah. So yeah. It's been a complete role reversal. Yeah. I can, I can kind of um, relate to that. So Matt uh, and I, we've lived at his mum's house since the first lockdown um kind of by accident we came here for a visit before lockdown happened and then that was the weekend that it was announced and we were like well, we don't really want to go back to London and be stuck in our flat um so then we've stayed down here and it's nice and green and we can go for walks um but his um sister lives his younger sister lives here who's also vegan and his um stepdad is also I mean I think he's kind of pescatarian doesn't really label himself but is very happy to cook vegan food mm. and they have been doing most of the cooking because I'm studying so I've usually I'll come off a lecture by the time that we're um, gonna eat so I've had to let go of that control of what I wanted to eat uh, yeah. or what I would allow myself to eat more like because I probably want to eat the same things but I wouldn't allow myself yeah. that was in the in the beginning that was hard like, I was really upset a lot of the time not really realizing why that was but I found out now that that was definitely one of the reasons because I mean on top of lockdown being really hard mentally but that having to give up all of that control because I used to just cook what I wanted to eat um yeah that's a that's a tough one but I think it's a very healthy uh way of doing it because yeah. you're getting fed and you're letting go of control and I mean that's a, a good thing isn't it yeah. yeah did you find that when you finished your lectures and you went downstairs and the food was prepared did you find it easy to then just kind of succumb to the fact that it was there and you think okay well I'll just eat it then or did you still have to kind of bargain with yourself or 
Mm-hmm. Trying to find ways at, to allow yourself. I mean, at the time, it was sometimes it was hard. Now I don't really think about it. I mean, I've I've come a surprisingly long way in just a year because I think I've just been so determined to like this is not who I want to be anymore. Um, but in the beginning, I mean, I would still. I'd, if I felt like we'd eaten a lot of bread, because bread was like a dangerous thing for me, if I felt like we'd eaten a lot of bread or gluten, like pasta or pizza or whatever, then I might do like a couple of days of just wanting to have a salad for dinner. Um, I don't do that anymore, thankfully. I mean, I still like I still like salad, but I'll have it if we're all kind of having it. Um, yeah. So yeah, thankfully now it's not it's not an issue. Um, no, I'm just grateful that someone's cooking so I don't have to stand there and cook for ages. Not that I love cooking, but it's just oh, after a long day, you're like, oh, thank you. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to talk quickly, well, I'll try and make it quickly anyway, about some methods that, I mean, so I, I am now doing this um, and they're a bit more alternative because the sort of classic, I mean, CBT, didn't work for me, didn't work for you, doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, and there's, you really have to kind of do some digging if you want to find any form of alternative methods, even if they're like psychotherapy, which is still a clinical kind of approach to things, um, but it's just not as readily available out there. But Absolutely. I was put in touch with this fantastic uh, human being who she, I think she's classically, classically trained, I don't know if you call it that, but she's trained as a psychotherapist, has worked for, for the NHS for like 10 or 20 years. Um, but then she's also a shaman and a holistic healer and all these other fantastic things. And I went to her with, um, uh, I don't know what to call it. I had a different relationship with my dad than I wanted to have and that was something that I because I love my dad and I appreciate my dad but there was just a miss maybe it was a miscommunication of expectations of what I needed from him and from what he was able to give me and how could we learn to not kind of let that become like a blame game um and she she works with uh, CRM, which is Comprehensive Resource Model. Um, and it's basically focused around uh, trauma um, and basically kind of works. With, you basically go into like a meditative state. It takes like three to four hours. You go into a meditative state, you listen to this special music, bilateral music, I think it's called. Um, and then she kind of guides you and talks to you and you have to do various breathing and like I uh what's that called eye stuff I'm trying to see every I've written it down somewhere you eye movement is what it's called um and you have to work with like um sacred geometry um where you basically you have to talk about the shapes and stuff that you might visualize Hmm. all this kind of stuff even like ancestral stuff it's very very interesting um and obviously a bit more alternative um but that I did that once and the relationship with my dad has completely changed. So yeah. I feel very safe in her hands. Yeah. Um, and I have felt my eating disorder getting worse because I feel like it's been all right. Like I've healed the relationship that I have with food, but I haven't healed the relationship that I have with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I feel like now I can 
eat whatever I want without panicking and feeling like I need to starve myself for three days. I don't like my body the way that I want to like it. Um, and rather than going on a hectic diet and working out loads, I'm like, let me, let me get some therapy for this because yeah. Anyway, um, so I spoke to her and she recommended CRM again because eating disorders usually come from some sort of trauma. Um, and what has actually been found in not just kind of her work, but also actually uh, clinically is that it can be, it can travel, trauma can travel in your DNA. So it can be a, an experience that your great grandfather or someone in your kind of family tree has had. Mm. So a lot of people actually, let me just get the book up now. It's called, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Worland. There's no front page because I was puppy sitting and it, it ate the page. Um, <laughs> but it looks like this. Um, and he basically found that a lot of people uh, in his studies specifically were, what do you say? They were um, in the Holocaust. Mm. So they were in a famine state. And then they're like, later on in our family generation that has then resurfaced as an eating disorder in some people um because it's like the state that you can like relate to or something or like yeah it's hard to explain anyway I'm not doing a very good job of uh doing it justice right now but I think that's a very interesting point like it might not have to do with your ancestors but Mm it it is for a lot of people even the the woman who's helping me that she had an eating disorder and she found out that it was like an ancestral thing and that that ancestor was in a famine state for a long period of time and that's why it kind of happened in her that's super interesting um and then also she recommended hypnotherapy so the, the first one is to kind of find out where the trauma started and then hypnotherapy is to basically find out how you can kind of transform the unconscious patterns and like programs that you how you normally think how can you change that um and then a very alternative and illegal uh method is microdosing mushrooms that's not something i'm obviously recommending that people just go out and do there's a lot of respect um that you need to have for that but it is something that's been found by um, there's a lot of studies at the London Imperial College uh, at the moment with microdosing. Um, that has, it's very helpful for PTSD and depression and like those anxiety. They were looking to use that for medicinal purposes. Yeah, and they're doing it now, um, research into eating disorders as well, and it's been found to be incredibly uh, powerful and effective. So obviously, it's not something... I, as someone who's studying psychology, can say because it's not—it's an illegal substance. It's in, it's classified the same as heroin, which is mm. insane. But anyway, um, but it is something that is worth, if nothing else works, fi- it, you know, finding someone who knows about it could—it could be an option to people. Um, yeah. And I'm only saying it because it's—it's it's now being proven clinically to be very effective. So those are kind of three things that I have have incorporated in my life and have found um, very effective. So I have my first CRM session tomorrow 
and then hypnotherapy again two weeks later. Um, so that she'll prove very interesting. But that, I mean, even just those options sound more mm. comprehensive than anything the NHS has ever offered and anything that I'm aware of, because, you know, the fact that you, there's one method for the initial fact finding, there's a second yeah. method once you've found it to then physically address it. Whereas NHS and like CBT, it's just hit and hope. It's just, mm -hmm. Let's just take a wild stab in the dark and see what see what comes up, and hopefully, yeah. that if we get something that we recognise is historically linked to it or is well known, we'll latch onto that. Talk about it once you're over it, you're fixed. So yeah, it's, yeah, I wish that back then I had more options because you you, you end up on a waiting list to get to a, a therapist on the NHS, and in that time you really are on your own you, there's very little support there are great charities like beat who can talk you through certain mm. feelings if you're in a bad place but they can't be there for you constantly so you are pretty much on your own yeah. the nhs to know that there are other resources there are other ways of approaching it i yeah. think it's going to help so many people yeah yeah, definitely. And I mean, even hypnotherapy, I've always thought like, oh, you're going to go into this trance and you're going to start behaving like a chicken. But actually, that's not at all what it is. It's basically yeah. like a very, very deep meditation where you kind of just, I guess, trust whatever comes to mind and then you work with that. And like, so it, I don't know if it has a bad name necessarily, but it has a very kind of like, oh, it's a bit hoo-ha. Like, you know, people are a bit worried about what that's going to be. I mean, even I, and I consider myself to be quite open-minded with this kind of stuff, but I was even like, what are we doing? Like, what's that going to be? But it's basically yeah. just like a very deep meditation. I guess like, um, like entertainment shows that have glorified it don't help at all. Because I know, exactly. It, it creates the wrong impression completely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then a lot of people don't believe in it. They're like, well, this can't be proven because how are you doing that? That's some kind of weird magic or witchery or something. Yeah. It's like, no, but that's not what it is. So let's, let's just get the facts, uh, get the facts clear. Um, I'm just going to mention a couple of books quickly, just in case people want to read. These are books that have helped me enormously. Um, just kind of mentioning this one after the it didn't start with you one is the biology of belief by bruce lipton looks like this um it basically is about how you can change uh, how do i explain it it is i'm trying to see if i've written it down i don't think i actually have um it's about how you can change by changing your thought pattern you can change your for example that your my eating disorder doesn't travel in my dna to my child okay. um it's also about how by thinking positively you can shrink cancer cells uh, and like so basically it's about how your your way of thinking can change your health so uh, physical and mental yeah yeah Exactly. So that one is very interesting just in terms of like the trauma traveling um, and stuff like that. And then a kind of um, clinical, it's called Body Respect. And it is, um, there's another one called Health at Every Size, which I think came before this one. And the author is 
Linda Bacon, now known as Lindo, um, they uh, are now non-binary. Um, and then Lucy Affermore um, are the two um, authors. And this is basically talking about how being fat doesn't equal being unhealthy, which personally mm. I didn't, I've, that's just how I grew up. I was just told that, well, fat people are unhealthy. Yeah. And having an eating disorder I've had to come to terms with as well means that I am, I have some internalized fat phobia, even though I might not think less of fat people now, I certainly have before. Not, not, not in like a horrible way where I would go up and say anything to anyone, but I would think that being fat, then your health is going to be worse. Yeah. And I've, I mean, basically, I've, I've had that as well because, because yeah. it's so internalized, you, you, everything's then judged based on your own core values. And yeah, yeah, I, I think it's not something we do intentionally. It's, yeah. just, it's just how we see the world, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think media has so much to answer for in this. Like, yeah. because we've shown people in the media who are skinny and fit and healthy, in quotation signs, um, that's what we associate with health. But actually, this is telling, this book is telling us that that's all bullshit. Like your blood pressure, a fat person's blood, fat person's blood pressure might be better than a, a skinnier person um, and even a fitter person so, and like all sorts of other stuff as well. So that's, I think that's a good one to read because I think what's going wrong for a lot of eating disorders like treatments is that they don't actually explain how your body works. And I don't think fat phobia is talked about very much in terms mm -hmm. of this, which I think is a huge mistake because I think it's basically what it comes down to. Like, yeah. well, yeah. for a lot of people it is, it depends on what the root cause of your eating disorder is, but for a lot of people it is. Um, and then Happy Fat by Sophie Hagen, um, which is just, I mean, her writing, sorry, she identifies as non-binary, but uses the pronoun she, um, he, or they. Um, but the writing is just absolutely, I mean, she's incredible. Um, she's a Danish comedian and um, she's a fat activist. Her Instagram is great. I can't remember what it is. I think it's just at Sophie Hagen, but basically just debunks everything as well and talks about her own experiences, um, which is fantastic. Uh, and then The Fuck It Diet by Caroline Duna, um, which basically there's a lot of clinical studies in here that kind of like the body respect debunks all the myths that we think that health and being fat doesn't equal one and the other, but that's actually false. Um, and then also her writing is just great as well. Um, a lot of swearing in it, which I like. <laughs> those are books that I would recommend anyone struggling with eating in any shape or form to read um, good choice yeah, highly highly recommend um, I'm just checking if I have anything written down I don't have any more but before we go I just want to ask kind of where you're at with your eating disorder now and just generally sort of in your life, your mental health, how, how are you feeling third lockdown? Like what's going, what's going on in your life? Yeah. Um, there's so much going on, but it's all positive. And my mental health 
is has never been better despite lockdown. Oh, amazing! Yeah, lockdown has I suppose pulled me back. I mean, certainly lockdown one last year before summer really held me back, and I had a complete meltdown for the first three, four weeks of it, which I'm sure most people had because it was that sudden change and it was. Yeah everything was out of my control and I, it was forced upon me and I couldn't deal with it because I wasn't ready to deal with it. But then I guess discovering a lot about myself during that first lockdown has given me the tools I need to then keep going. I found different things to do because I couldn't work. So I turned, well, I was doing activism anyway, but I turned my attention completely to, to activism looked for more ways to challenge myself. And I just thought, well, I can't go out there. I can't do anything. I certainly can't sit at home playing Animal Crossing anymore. Or <laughs> death. So yeah, I mean, it was, I, I remember thinking one day, I don't want to just sit watching Netflix, drinking the day away, playing video games, watching the odd news bulletin to see where, what the world's doing. I need to do something and mm. the more I got involved in things the more I I saw that I could change things and influence things the more it gave me this passion to keep going and no matter how bad things were going on in the world with Covid the fact that I was still able to make a difference in a small way is what kept me going and yeah you know it kind of made me hungry for it you know when I helped one person who was being refused shared care with their GP, helped them through it, got that sorted. And I came away allowing myself to, to feel good about it and celebrate mm. that we've done that. And then I thought, well, if I can help one person, I can help two, I can help three. I can, I, and it just spiraled from there. So I've really used that energy to push myself into doing things I would never have done before any of the pandemic. I would never have done Video, live video interviews I would make sure everything's written I would get a read back I can approve everything before going to print um, but yeah now I don't care I think I've stopped giving so many fucks to the haters or doubters because I've started to learn in lockdown what's truly important and yeah. so for me, there's been a huge amount of self-discovery and it's still been difficult you know what's happening with back then our, our tattoo studio, what's happening mm. with various projects and what can I do. But I think it's kind of like a leveling up, hit another level where I can look back and look down on the things beneath me and think, I've got that, I've got that. Don't worry about that so much because that will fix itself. And being able to prioritize and organize myself over what needs doing that's really helped me and, and in return that's really helped my mental health because I'm no longer hung up on the little things I used to be or I'm no longer dwelling on the negatives that that would eat me alive but having yeah. said that you know going back to what we were saying about the food there are still thoughts and again it comes back to I don't think we ever fully recover because I'm in the best place I've ever been yet they're still there and it's that constant management and, and acknowledging that I need to keep managing and keep on top of it, keep questioning these thoughts to make sure that I make the right decision. Um, yeah. So for me, it's been it's just been one hell of a year for everyone, but it's been a very a very interesting journey, I guess. And um, 
yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. <laughs> it's, I've, I've actually ended up a lot more positive than yeah. ever because like if I'd done the Boots magazine feature a year ago or two years ago, I would have crumbled under the immense, like all that hate and all of our comments that it attracted, I would have crumbled. I would have not been able yeah. to survive. I would have probably canceled and shut down my social media. Yeah. But now I've read some of those comments and they are absolutely disgusting, but I don't care. I just, Good. it doesn't even, doesn't even scratch the surface. And I guess some people might argue that it's a shame that we have to switch off from that side of it. But for now, I'm happy that I don't care because it means I can turn my attention to something else instead. And Absolutely. I never would have done that without lockdown because it has yeah. pushed me and forced me to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And like, as you're saying, like what you're explaining, you have so many more positive things to worry about. Like, fuck those idiots. Absolutely. Like, and I think support network has been good because we've not had our regular people around us we've mm. had to do everything online but the beauty of doing things online is we're connected to many many more people than we ever yeah. thought i met you Very true. Through yeah instagram and now we're doing this and i consider us good friends we can have these yeah. but that would never have happened before lockdown so it's given us all support networks we, some of us don't even realise that just by chatting to someone that you know on social media, that's a support network. And you've, you've, yeah. you've nurtured that over lockdown. So that has really, really saved us all, I think, because yeah, have not been aware of it, but it's been there and it's helped us through. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for social media and how bad it can be, how absolutely negative it can be. But as I said earlier, if you can navigate it, it's an incredible tool. I mean, just absolutely amazing the my therapist I don't know if she wants to classify as a therapist but person who's helping me with my mental health um she asked like social media is that like how is that ever triggering for you or um, is it something that you would ever be willing to stop going on um and I mean I about four years ago I had to just unfollow every single person that I didn't feel like that made me feel shit about myself all the fucking models and fitness mm. instructors and stuff I was like nope no more um and sometimes I do feel like I spend a lot of time on it but I'm trying to use it very much in the same way that you're doing it as like you can you can meet people and you can connect with people through this thing like it's yeah. just insane and finding that I just think the world you know the world is so much bigger and you're able to kind of find like-minded people in a much easier way because your immediate community that you kind of live around might not have the same mindset as you exactly, yeah. um and just inspire like now I my whole feed is just inspiring people people that I find inspiring and a lot of knowledge and all that kind of stuff so I think if you use it in the right way it's I yeah. mean the most amazing, amazing thing ever plus it's also knowing that if somebody no longer inspires you it's okay to unfollow them you don't yeah. have to you don't owe them anything you don't owe them that yeah. follow. and if something's triggering it's your account you you're okay yeah. you're well within your rights to unfollow them and i think it's good that we we start really pushing those good behaviors on social media those good practices so that we can definitely better yeah, definitely. And I think what I've done with some accounts for periods of time is I've just muted them 
Yeah. Like I might, cause I might still, I know for some people they need followers to get sponsorships or whatever, but if I don't want to see their content, I'll just mute it for a period of time. And then I might want to go back to it and watch it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you definitely don't owe anyone a follow. So if it's really not something you want to be a part of, definitely just click. Yeah. <laughs> no more of that. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Do you just want to share quickly your account, your two accounts? Your personal one and the pass it on campaign yes so my personal one is eva echo which is just e-v-a-e-c-h but zero instead of an o on the end and um, because somebody took the other one oh, no. <laughs> um but i don't mind it's quirky and my campaign the pass it on campaign is pass it on all of one word dot campaign and um, but you'll be able to okay. find it. it's linked through my own instagram anyway yeah, and I'm going to, in whatever you can see underneath either the YouTube or the the podcast, I'll, I'll type it in there as well. Cool, thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for this. This is lovely. I've found this amazing. It's been really, really good to talk through all these things because, again, yeah. it's like until you talk through your experience of therapy, you just think you're the only one. And it's yeah. like the whole idea of coming out with an eating disorder, coming out as transgender or, or whatever, or speaking up against the salts. Until you have that conversation, you don't really appreciate how big the issue is. And it's good yeah. that these conversations are happening so that other people don't have to look for them. They're there, readily available. Yeah, yeah, very true. Very true, could not agree more. I think everyone should just talk all the time. Um, yeah or communicate in whatever way they can um, yeah definitely amazing I'll let you get on with your evening thank you for spending an hour and a half with me um, I'm sure I'll talk to you later on on Instagram yeah. thank you very much <laughs> thank you. you bye, bye.